your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Currently, uh, as you know, in the Old Testament and uh, moving right on through. In Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah received his call and his commission. In chapter 2, he started his first message. God has condemned Judah for two things. One, they've rejected God. And secondly, as a result, they have made their own gods. God said in Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5, You must not have any other god but me. You must not make them, bow down to them, nor worship them. Verses 1 through 5 this evening will continue on this subject. And the messages in chapters 2 through 6 were given during the first five years of Jeremiah's ministry before the book of the law was found in the temple. But during this time, Josiah, a young king, a young man like Jeremiah, they were, he was seeking the Lord. And he was starting certain reforms in the nation. And he was mostly trying to clean up the idolatry in Judah. Judah had abandoned the living God and they had turned to idolatry. And you can see that the works of this young king Josiah and the young prophet Jeremiah had a great impact on the nation of Israel. Now Judah had gone over to idolatry because it was the easy way and the popular way. And that's the way a lot of people like things, the easy way and the popular way. But it was the wrong way. And it was a road that led to lowering their standards and it brought them down even lower spiritually and morally. The shamelessness of Judah is further seen by using a figure of marriage like Jeremiah did in chapter 2 verse 2. But this time Jeremiah used the subject of divorce. And the words remind us of Hosea chapter 2 1 through 5 and not chapter 9 verse 1. Where Hosea says, bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband, God says. Jeremiah argues against the idea of easy repentance. Religiously, Judah had played the harlot with many lovers. And in verses 1 through 5, Jeremiah speaks of Judah's shamelessness. So in chapter 3, let's begin with verse 1. And it says, they say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, and yet you return to me, says the Lord. Judah was unfaithful to God many times and thought that she could return to God whenever she wanted. The Mosaic law allowed a man to divorce his wife, but it didn't allow him to marry her again, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And God had every right to reject his people because they had abandoned him. Now, they didn't abandon him in order to to marry another husband. They abandoned him in order to play around, to play around like the harlot with many lovers. Now, you might be thinking, why was marriage put on that kind of a basis? Well, because God doesn't agree to wife swapping, which, would, which this would amount to. There is to be no trading back and forth. And this seems like a very easy way to divorce, and it was. Now, why did God allow it? Well, Jesus was approached and was asked the same question. 
It says, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you. Notice, didn't command you to get divorced, but permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, going back to Genesis 2, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who was divorced commits adultery. Matthew 19, verses 7 through 9. Unfaithful, unfaithfulness to the marriage vow was the only grounds for divorce. Jesus said that Moses was permitted to make this law. Why? Because of the hardness, the hardness of their hearts. Hardness of their hearts was nothing more than an unwillingness to forgive. And that's what destroys marriages many times. It's the unwillingness to forgive. There are a lot of things that God allows in his permissive will. But he allows it because of the hardness of people's hearts. And this is still true today in many cases of divorce. It's also true in many of our homes. And it's true in the personal lives of many people. God is merciful and he is gracious to us. And he allows things in our lives that aren't in his direct will. It's his permissive will that demonstrates his grace to us. Now, knowing this, it would be the right thing to do for some of the more spiritual brothers not to be so critical of other people today. Jeremiah is saying here that the people had gone to the hills and they had built shrines and they were devoted, dedicated to these foreign gods. And they were behaving worse than common prostitutes who at least waited for lovers to come to them. But Judah had gone after false gods over and over again and committed spiritual adultery with them. But instead of God rejecting his people... God, in his grace and his mercy, patiently invited them to come back to him. And he says, I'll restore you as my wife. What abundant grace the grace of God is. Look at verse 2. Goes on to say, lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see. Where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them. Like an Arab or an Arabian in the wilderness. And you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. You know, Jeremiah says, look at the shrines. The shrines. They're on every hilltop. Jeremiah says to the people, where haven't you defiled yourself by adultery with other gods? He says, you sit beside the road like a prostitute waiting for a customer. You sit alone like a drifter, like an Arabian in the desert. You've polluted the land with your prostitution and your wickedness. Idolatry isn't just making a little idol that you worship. An idol is anything that you give yourself to with all of your heart. That's adultery. Whatever dominates your time. The Bible teaches that covetousness is idolatry. Because when a man wants something, he gives whatever it is. His time, his energy to what he's dedicated to. And especially today, we see a lot of people who are dedicated to sin. And the energy that they put into sin is unimaginable. But you see, the minute that man turns away from the living God, he'll turn to something else. What else is there? When you turn away from the living God, what else is there? It will be something that he's made. And it will become his God, his idol. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan said this about the nature of idolatry and the worship of the true God. 
He said, when a man makes a God according to the pattern of his own being, he makes a God like himself, an enlargement of his own imperfection. Moreover, the God which a man makes for himself will demand from him that which is according to his own nature. It's clearly evident in Mohammedanism, great and wonderful and outstanding in his personality as Mohammed was, yet the blighting sensuality of the man curses the whole of Islam today. Men will be afraid, I'm sorry, men will be faithful to those gods who make no demands upon them which are out of harmony with the desires of their own hearts. When God calls men, it's the call of the God of holiness, the God of purity, the God of love. And he demands that they rise to his height. He can't accommodate himself to the depravity of their nature. He won't consent to the things of desire within them that are of impurity and evil. He calls men up and even higher until they reach the height of perfect conformity to his holiness. God's call to humanity is always first pure and then peaceable, first holy and then happy, first righteous and then rejoicing. A.W. Tozer said this, God's grace will save a man, but it will not save a man in his idol. The blood of Christ will shield the penitent sinner alone, but never the sinner and his idol. Faith will justify the sinner, but it will never justify the sinner and his sin. You see, sin has to be forsaken. People think today that they can be Christians and go to church and walk with God, but still hang on to their sin. God said that Jeremiah's generation and Judah had sunken deeply into idolatry with all of their heart. And as a result, as a result there was a sickening immorality in the land. And when he says here in verse 2, lift up your eyes to the high desolate heights, you need to understand how totally immoral those high places were. Now a high place was an orchard of trees where an idolatrous altar had been built. And all kinds of sex orgies and drunken parties were carried on there. Judah has sunk to a new low. But Judah wasn't much different than our nation today. America has abandoned the living and true God for junk gods. Which is very obvious when you look at the moral condition of this country. There's lawlessness. There's dishonesty. There's sexual promiscuity. There's sexual perversion. There's disunity. There's corrupt speech. And the list goes on. Everywhere you turn. I just read read yesterday in a newsletter. You may have read it yourself here's what it says boy scouts marched in a homosexual pride parade in seattle that included naked men pedaling bicycles the uniformed scouts were marching through downtown seattle with rainbow colored flags it's unclear if the nude cyclers were authorized to be in the parade other videos showed naked men dancing about in water fountains with children nearby This is the kind of perversion and grooming of our children today. More and more and more we're seeing this. That's why it's so important, church, that, man, we stick to the Word of God and we stand for the Word of God and we stand for Jesus Christ. Because this world is trying... They're they're not going to get the old-timers because we are going to stand fast, but they're grooming our children They're trying to get to them by having drag queens come into the classroom and do parties and perform for them and these kinds of things. They're going on. We need to understand what's going on in our nation today. 
Look at verse 3. Therefore, notice, therefore, as a result of these things, okay, as a result of the things that, that Jeremiah just mentioned in 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, notice what it says. Therefore, the showers have been withheld. And there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. This is really interesting. God tells them that he's already started to judge them by withholding back the rain. Even today, that land is dry. What does that tell us today about the drought that we're in? They needed water more than they need oil. I read this about the drought that we're in. The water year that ended in September 2021 was the second driest ever recorded. Many areas at a certain point, most of California was in an extreme drought. Family, and, and when you read scripture, you see this in scripture. Families and farmers who live off water reservoirs have been affected the most by the dry conditions. For farmers, the drought has killed their crops. And soon enough, they won't have money, enough money for repairs or replacements for their equipment. And since they aren't producing anything, they have no income. These dry conditions are threatening their livelihood. And if the drought conditions continue or worsen, we may see problems with grocery stores and their storage of food and how to get more. The drought is going to, be, is the, the drought is going to eventually affect everyone as there will be a limited supply of fresh produce causing prices to rise. Going into January 2022, Janu- I'm sorry, going into Jan- uh, 2022, January and February were known as the driest consecutive January and February on record in the last 100 years. And you read that in Scripture where God withheld the rain. And guess the farmer didn't, couldn't plant crops. They didn't grow. They didn't have anything to eat. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The sad thing is, it doesn't seem to wake us up and bring us back to Him. Look at verses 4 and 5. Will you not from this time cry to me? My father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. Jeremiah says, speaking for, for God, Jeremiah says, Yet you say to me, Father, you've been my guide since my youth. Surely you won't be angry forever. Surely you can forget about it. We'd like him to, wouldn't he? Forget about our sin. So you talk, but you keep on doing all the evil that you can. In spite of the people's great sin, the people of Israel continued to talk like they were God's children. And the only way you can do this kind of thing is to downplay sin. Act like it's no big deal. And when we know we've done something wrong, what do we want to do? We want to downplay it. It's not really that big a deal. You know, it, it, it really doesn't matter to God. So we downplay the wrong. And what does that do? It helps us to relieve some of the guilt that we feel. And as we water down our sinfulness and we say it's not a big deal, then it's only natural that we feel like we don't have to make any changes. So we keep right on sinning. But if we see every wrong attitude and every wrong action as a serious offense against God, then we'll start to understand what living for God is all about. We need to ask ourselves, is there any sin in our life that you have watered down? That you just kind of kick to the side and say, it's not a big deal. It's not really anything to worry about. 
God says that we have to confess and turn away from every single sin. Every single sin. Verse 6. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and every green tree, and there she played the harlot. Here Jeremiah starts his second message. and It starts in verse 6 and it goes through chapter 6. And in this message, God charges the people with backsliding. Now, the word backsliding is found seven times in chapter 3, and that's twice as much as the whole book. The word is used more in Jeremiah than the rest of the Bible put together. He and Hosea are the ones who use it. Now, backsliding doesn't just mean to slide backwards. God gives us a clear picture of what he means by backsliding when he tells us in Hosea 4.16, Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now, I have no doubt that God will judge the country more harshly than he'll judge the nations that don't have the Bible. Because, you see, we have the word of God. We have a great light. But, you see, we've chosen to live in darkness. The Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. Now, a lot of places don't have Bibles. They don't have the word of God, but you and I do. And I believe God's going to judge us according to the opportunities that he gives us. Verse 8. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certain certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Judah saw... That God is saying here through Jeremiah, Judah saw that I divorced faithless Israel because of her idolatry. But that treacherous sister, speaking of Judah, had no fear. She wasn't afraid. And now she too has left me and has prostituted herself. Verse 9. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defied, defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Israel treated it all so lightly, she thought nothing about committing adultery by worshiping idols that were made out of wood and stone. So now the land has been polluted, verse 10. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. God is making it clear that Judah's sin is worse than the sin of Israel. The northern tribes didn't have the same opportunity as the southern tribes. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have a copy of the word of God. So the judgment on Judah was greater. Just as God's judgment on us will be greater as well. Verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. So God tells Israel he's going to bring them back into the land if, notice the conditions, if they'll turn to him. God is gracious and God is wonderful. Verse 13. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree and you have not, notice, you have not obeyed my voice says 
people, Lord. Today, the big problem is no confession of sin. Repentance is lacking in so much of the so-called spirituality of the church today. We need to confess our sin. Do you claim to be a Christian? What does that mean? Do you say that you've trusted in Christ? What do you trust him for? You might say that Jesus Christ is your savior. Well, and that's wonderful, and he is. But did he save you from sin? Is he the Lord of your life? Meaning, is he the master of your life? Remember that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sin, not in our sin. He didn't save me to give me a new personality and, or, or patch up the old life. He didn't save me to, to make me wealthy or a millionaire. To, or he didn't save me to make me happy or to take away all of my problems. He saved me to make me holy. He didn't save me to make all of my dreams come true. He died to save us from all of our sins. He was nailed to the cross for our offenses. Because we were very offensive to God. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. We've all gone astray, Paul said. None of us have done good. We've all gone our own way. Not one good thing dwells in us, Paul said. The word of God through Jeremiah is, acknowledge your iniquity and it's directed to us as well as to Judah. Verse 14. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. The Lord says here to his backsliding children, he says, return to me. He says, return to me because I am married to you. He says, I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. He says, I'll, I'll take one from this town, and I'll take two from that family. From wherever you're scattered, I will bring you to the land. That's God's grace. Verse 15. And I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. God says there's a better day coming for those who return to me. He said in that day I will give you shepherds, pastors, according to my heart. Who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That is the word of God. In the past, both Israel and Judah had some pretty poor leaders. But God says through Jeremiah, this is going to change. This will change. And a new order of spiritual living will exist in that day. And a new relationship with God will come into being. Verse 16. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it. Speaking of the covenant of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, nor shall they visit it. Again, the Ark of the Covenant, nor shall it be made anymore. Now, this is a prophecy of the last days. And it, it goes out to the kingdom age when the Lord has returned and he gathers together his, his remnant. And the Lord is there in the midst of them in Zion, Jerusalem. The words those days here in verse 16 is a common reference to the Old Testament to those days when the Lord comes and he's reigning. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of the covenant between man and God. God made with the nation of Israel where they related to him and they would be his people and he would be their God. And the Ark of the Covenant 
inside the Ark of the Covenant were the two tablets of stone where the Lord had engraved the Ten Commandments on them. So inside the Ark, you were related to God by the law. Now the Bible said that he that does these things shall live by them. The Ark of the Covenant represented their relationship to God through obedience to the law. But when Jesus came, he said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. He said, Greater love has no man than this, that a man will lay down his life for his friends. So when he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it, he said, This is my body that is broken for you. When he took the cup, he said, this is a new covenant in my blood, which is said for the remi- uh, shed for the remission of sins. For the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. So now, we don't relate to God through the old covenant of the law, but through the new covenant of Jesus Christ and faith in the sacrifice that Jesus has made for our sins. That's how we relate to God now. The old, the old covenant... The Ark of the Covenant, that won't be a fixture in the kingdom age when the Lord Jesus Christ himself is reigning in Jerusalem. It says here that the Ark of the Covenant, it won't be a part of it anymore. The Ark of the Covenant, it says here by Jeremiah, it won't even be thought of because it was the place where men met God, man met God. And the high priest would go in twice on one day a year on Yom Kippur and he'd offer the sacrifices for the nation and he would meet with God. But now God is dwelling in man, no longer in the Holy of Holies. God is with us. He dwells in us in this temple. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is here. Jesus is reigning. And the relationship to God won't be through the old system of the law, but now through Jesus Christ. The Ark of the Covenant shall not come to mind, Jeremiah says. He says, they're not going to remember it anymore, nor shall they miss it or visit it, nor shall it be rebuilt or repaired and made again. Verse 17. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Jesus will be there, and he'll be reigning there. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. And that's going to be an awesome day. And in that awesome day of the Lord, when Jesus reigns from his throne in Jerusalem, men won't walk anymore by the dictates of their own heart. They won't walk by their, uh, the, the imagination of their evil heart. Verse 18. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. And they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. Judah and Israel will be reunited, reunited, and the things that had divided them before will be gone. But despite all of these good plans God had for his people, he still has this problem. He still has a problem. Verse 19, look what it says. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the host of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. God says, I thought to myself, I'd love to treat you as my own children. He says, I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world. He said, I looked forward to you calling me father. 
and I wanted you never to turn from me. Look what he says in verse 20 now. Surely, as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. He says, he says though I wanted to, to, to give you this possession, this beautiful land, and, and I look forward to you calling me father, and, and I never wanted you to turn away from me. And verse 20 says, but you have been unfaithful to me. You, the people of Israel. He says, you have been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. Verse 21, a voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. It says here that voices are heard on, on, the, on those top of those, those mountains where they did their idol worshiping. And there was the weeping and the pleading of Israel's people. Why? Because they have chosen crooked paths and they have forgotten their God. Not only have they turned away from God, but now they've forgotten him. So, Lord, so the Lord calls out to them. He calls even to them. This is the grace of God, the mercies of God, and the patience of God to still call out to them. Now, anybody else would have said, hey, forget you, man. I, I'm going I'm to look for somebody else. But God is patient. And look what he says in the first part of verse 22. Return, you, black, you, black, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Listen to their response to what God said in verse 22a, the first part. Look what they, their response in the second part. Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. This is their response. Notice the answer back in verse 23. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for, hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. The people were confessing that the wild and foolish religion that they practice and the popular uh, uh, nature worship couldn't bring them real satisfaction and peace. In closing, let's look at verses 24 through 27. I'm sorry, 24 through 25. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. The confession of the people continues here in verses 24 and 25. They're saying here from childhood... We've watched as everything our ancestors worked for, that is their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters, was squandered on a delusion. He, the, the, the people are saying, let us lie down in shame and cover ourselves with dishonor because we and our ancestors have sinned against you, Lord. From our childhood, notice, to this day, he says, they said, we've never obeyed. Can you imagine? They're confessing from our childhood to this day, we've never obeyed you, God. Confession means that a person has started to face himself honestly. It's recognizing that man is not wise enough to direct his own life. As smart as we think we are, and as smart as we think we are, and that we can direct our own life. Jeremiah 10, 23 says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks, notice, to direct his own steps. That's why we need a shepherd. 
to lead us and to guide us. Psalm 94, verse 11 and 12 says this, The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. Blessed is the man whom you instruct. God has no way of meeting our needs until we reach this point of recognizing and confessing our sin. That's the only time God can help me. It was when I recognize my sin, I confess my sin, and forsake my sin and turn to Him. When confession is sincere and when it's complete, He immediately starts His work of healing in the heart. Father, we thank You so much for this chapter, Lord, and and for this wonderful Word, God. Lord, help us to, to, to heed what the Spirit is saying, God. That, Lord, until we recognize our sin, confess our sin, and forsake our sin, there's nothing that God can do for us. God wants to save us. He wants to restore us. He wants to to help us. But until we cast aside the idols in our life, he'll remain on the sidelines. Because there can't be two gods in our life. There can't be two thrones in our heart. God will not share the throne with anyone or anything. So Lord, may we look to you. May we keep our eyes eyes fixed on you, God. May we not turn to the left or turn to the right. But look up and see you. The author and the finisher of our faith. We thank you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen.